We all want to get along with our coworkers. When we do, we're more productive, engaged, and creative, but that's not always possible. And we only reinforce negative dynamics when we assume all difficult people are, quote, jerks. Fortunately, we don't have to grin and bear bad behavior at work. There are ways to change our approach. We can improve our interactions and even turn enemies into allies. As a bonus, when we navigate work relationships successfully, we build interpersonal resilience. This helps us bounce back quicker from negative interactions and have less stress going forward. Hey, it's Dustin, and you're listening to another episode of The Burleson Box. Today on the program, we have Amy Gallo in her latest book, Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone, Even Difficult People. In the book, Amy shares insights, tools, and techniques based on interviews she conducted over more than a decade with social psychologists, workplace experts, and neuroscientists about dealing with difficult coworkers. I'm so excited to welcome Amy Gallo to the program today. Amy's the contributing editor at Harvard Business Review, where she writes about workplace dynamics, and she's the author of the HBR Guide to Dealing with Conflicts. She also co-hosts HBR's Women at Work podcast. As a speaker and workshop facilitator, Gallo has helped thousands of leaders deal with conflict more effectively and navigate complicated workplace dynamics with success. She's a graduate of Yale University and has a master's in public policy from Brown University. I'm so very excited to welcome Amy to this episode of The Burleson Box and to speak about her book, Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone, Even Difficult People. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Are you trying to increase your treatment plan close rates while also increasing revenue? How can you do both for your dental practice without burning out an already burdened staff? The answer? Remote dental monitoring. You need a trusted HIPAA-compliant app that helps you and your staff work smarter, not harder. This needs to be an easy-to-use, easy-onboard app that your patients will find fun to use and will increase their engagement and success with aligners. You need the InHand Dental app. The InHand Dental app allows you to engage with your patients in real time, send individual and batched messages, and solve problems to increase compliance without using up chair time. The result? Happy patients, happy staff, and happy practices with more revenue and the ability to do more starts. With prices starting as low as $149 a month, it's perfect for a growing aligner business. Check us out and learn more at InHandDental.com. Plus, mention Burleson for a 20% off discount on your subscription when you contact us. That's InHandDental.com. I'm so honored to have Amy Gallo on the program. Welcome, Amy. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Your previous book I've read is the HBR Guide to Dealing with Conflict. Uh, can you talk about what inspired you to write your latest book, Getting Along? Yeah, they're actually quite connected. So when the HBR Guide to Dealing with Conflict came out, you know, it was, it was meant to be a real straightforward, practical approach to dealing with any type of conflict that might arise in the workplace. And in it, I sort of outlined this this very clear step-by-step process. Um, it was very neat and tidy <laughs> is how I think of it. Um, and I started doing talks and workshops based on the book. And what I was finding was that inevitably one person, sometimes two, sometimes even three would come up to me after the talk or the workshop or would show up in the chat if it, if it was a virtual talk 
and would say, this is so helpful, but I have this one coworker and they would proceed to describe someone who really the sort of quote unquote generic advice really didn't apply to because there were specific patterns of behavior that were making it challenging. And so you know, I was fortunate as an editor at HBR, I'm exposed to a lot of the management research that um, comes out. And I knew for some of these questions, you know, it was about passive aggressive behavior or how to deal with a pessimist. I knew there was research on how to deal with those specific behaviors. And so, you know, with, with getting along, what I really wanted to do was give people specific tailored advice depending on the type of behavior that they were dealing with. And so that's why the book is structured around eight different archetypes of sort of common, um, you know, again, patterns of behavior or types of difficult people, and then with evidence-based advice for dealing with each of those. I have to admit, I'm guilty of this. Before reading your book, I kind of thought at work, there's either difficult people or really pleasant people. I kind of yeah. just lumped them into two categories. So uh, <laughs> your your book lays out eight. I'm like, oh boy, yeah, I know, I know, I know some of these people. Hopefully I haven't been any of these people. <laughs> Can well, you, yeah. we all have. We all have. So. <laughs> Can, what, you know, when you, when you read the book, you're like, oh, this is a lot of work. Why, why are work relationships so important? Is it worth all the trouble, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely believe it is. And and just to pick up on on your last comment about the eight, that's not even it's not a complete list, right? There there <laughs> yeah. are many, many more. Um as I like to say, there are many flavors of challenging coworkers out there. <laughs> you just have to figure out what your particular flavor is. Um but I do think it's worth these investing in these relationships. I you know I actually believe it's really important to invest in your positive relationships. I think because of our negativity bias, we get really hung up on the the not so pleasant interactions. Um, but you know, it's very clear from decades and decades of research that the quality of our life depends on the quality of our relationships. And that's true of our family, our friends, our community, our neighbors, but it's also true of our coworkers. And I think anyone listening, you know, certainly would understand that or, or relate to that idea that when things are good at work with your coworkers, when you get along, maybe even you feel friendly toward them, um, you know, perhaps you are supporting one another, have each other's back. It feels good, right? And when it's the opposite, right? When there's fracture, when there's discord, it feels terrible. But I want to make clear, though, that this isn't just about feelings. Like there is research that shows that having friends at work is good for our engagement, good for our performance. It's good um, for uh, innovation, right? The, these things are all connected to how we actually perform our job. And the opposite is true too, right? Which is the more we witness or experience incivility at work, the less likely we are to be resilient, to have, um, you know, sort of the cognitive bandwidth we need to perform at the level we want to perform. You know, one of my favorite pieces of research in this area showed there was a team at Rutgers who looked at um, people who considered they considered themselves to have a best friend at work, and those pairs of people actually did better on their performance reviews 
than people who said they didn't have a best friend at work. And which is fascinating because again, I think a lot of times we think of the relationships we have with people as work as as sort of an additional benefit, right? Like I like my job, I like the content of the work, I, I feel competent in doing it. Oh, and also I happen to like the people I work with, that's great. But getting along with the people you work with is essential to doing all of those other things, whether you like your job, whether you feel engaged, whether you perform, uh, whether you're able to try new things, take risks, et cetera. Yeah, I just want to highlight for the listeners, the book is so well researched and referenced. And if you're like me and you like to go down the uh, research rabbit hole and go back to the notes section, <laughs> uh, you did such a wonderful job. It's not just the literature, but you interviewed like a ton of authors and asked them these sorts of questions, which is really valuable. So yeah. I want to highlight one in chapter two that I thought was really exciting for me in in the brain science and the literature on how our, our, our brains can actually kind of work against us, right? When, when we encounter someone difficult at work and we become stressed, can you talk about how sometimes our minds work against us? Yeah. And, and it's, I have to say for a long time, I thought, you know, I've dealt with people my whole life. Like, of course I know how to do this, right? This, this is my, my brain should instinctively know how to do this. We're, we're hardwired to be in community with people. But the problem is our brains are also designed to protect us and to sense threats. So when there's a rupture in a relationship, even if it's just a simple eye roll, or one snarky email, right? Our brain immediately is, senses a threat, senses danger, and goes into protective mode. And so we go into what emotional intelligence experts call amygdala hijack, where the amygdala, which is the, the part of our brain responsible for threat detection, um, kicks into high gear. And we lose access to the prefrontal cortex, which is the rational thinking part of our brain. And so we don't, you know, very put very simply, we don't make great decisions when we're under that sort of stress. And again, it can be a minor amount of stress to trigger this response in your brain. The other thing our brain is really good at is making meaning from things, right? Detecting patterns. So if you combine that threat detection and the meaning making, you know, let's say you and I are in a meeting, Dustin, you roll your eyes. Instead of me thinking, huh, what's going on with Dustin, right? Being curious, <laughs> like, oh, did I say something? Instead, my brain immediately makes up a story of like, oh my gosh, Dustin's being a jerk again. I can't believe, you know, wait. And it's this, this story oftentimes is about me being the hero, you being the villain. And then we get wedded because of a concept called premature cognitive con commitment. We get wedded to that story. And so, we're sitting here judging our colleagues, um, being inflexible in our thinking, having our whole body, our sort of nervous system set into high gear. And that's not a good place from which to have a challenging conversation or give someone feedback or, you know, to sort of extend an olive branch. And so we really have to sort of overcome that reaction, ask ourselves, what's really going on here? What might be another explanation? What could be going on with Dustin? And really encouraging the curiosity, even though our brain wants to make a snap judgment and stick to it. You have some great advice later in the book on how to give yourself space to do that. I, I want to dig into that and some of the archetypes. But first, you talk about 
quote, cleaning up our side of the street. I mean, I kind of laughed earlier. It's like, I hope I haven't been these people knowing that I've, I've been all of these people. Right? Can you explain why it's a good idea to start with our own side of the street? Yeah. I mean, one of the principles underlying the book and my work is, is that ultimately at the end of the day, we cannot change another person. I mean, we, and actually, you know, I say that, but I sort of want to step back a little bit and say, we can influence people to make different choices. We do it all day long. Um, But if your success in navigating this challenging relationship with your colleague depends on them becoming a different person, you are setting yourself up to failure. And I think the the key is to acknowledge that the real thing that we can control are our thoughts, feelings, and reactions. And we play a critical role in this dynamic with the other person. Yes, they might be passive aggressive, or they might play the victim, or they might be biased, right? But the chances are we are doing something either in reaction to that behavior, or even before they, you know, do that behavior that's creating some tension in the dynamic. And so when I say clean up your side of the street, what I'm saying is, you know, make sure you are developing the self-awareness you need about how you might be contributing to the dynamic. Make sure that you're not bringing unnecessary emotional baggage to the relationship that, that might be, you know, causing it to worsen as opposed to giving it room to breathe. And it does require and I'm explicit about this, it does require that you be the, you know, quote unquote, adult in the room in order to to try to change the dynamic. But ultimately, I think that's worth it because, A, I don't have another lever to pull other than my own behavior. And B, having been the adult in the room or uh, cleaned up my side of the street, Ultimately, I feel better about myself having done that as opposed to sitting back and just hoping my colleague changes, which usually doesn't work, (laughs) or um, retaliating. I mean, that's another thing I think we often think of like, well, they're going to behave that way, then I'm going to do this. And I never, even if it feels good in the short term to sort of fight fire with fire, in the long term, I never feel good about having made that decision. That's great, great advice. I, I again, I, I love the book. Uh, I do want to dig into. Can we, can we start with pessimists? Is that okay? Sure, yeah. of course. Um, I think in, in healthcare, in particular, maybe not pessimists. Well, some pessimists, but a lot of skepticism. <laughs> right? I always yes. joke and say you probably don't want your surgeon trying every new technique she learns. You know, on the way to work, like I heard a podcast. I'm going to try this new <laughs> suture. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> maybe a little bit of skepticism, pessimism, yeah. not outright cynicism. You give some great tactics in chapter four. And I love this because it's so easy to dismiss in team meetings. Like, oh, here comes a pessimist again. We're like, that's not going to work. But you say it's really dangerous to ignore complaints or concerns from pessimists. Can we dig into that? Yeah. I mean, we can, we could name easily five you know, corporate scandals <laughs> that like, let's think about Wells Fargo, let's think about Enron, right? Folks like, of places where people ignored others who kept saying, I'm not sure this is the right approach, or maybe this isn't going to work, or we haven't thought about this, right? And I think the the danger is, especially in so many organizations, there's a tendency um, that aren't as skeptical, perhaps, as as the healthcare industry, you know, there's a tendency to sort of veer into toxic positivity, this like insistence on optimism. And 
while that sort of feels good, it doesn't, it, it often doesn't reflect reality. And your pessimist on your team might actually be raising some really important red flags. Now, I'm sure people, so there's some people listening going, we haven't met the pessimist on my team, <laughs> right? And I, I acknowledge the behavior is annoying. And I acknowledge that sometimes it's just a knee-jerk reaction. It's not actually thoughtful about what the r- true risks are. But I think it's dangerous to dismiss it, partly because there's a tendency with a lot of the archetypes, but especially with the pessimist, to polarize, right? To say, oh, they're negative. I'm positive. They have a dark cloud over their head. I see nothing but sunshine and rainbows, right? And just to to the more you do that, the more you dismiss what might be some valid concerns. And even if 90% of the time the concerns aren't valid, you don't want to get in the habit of completely dismissing that pessimist so that that when that 10% of concerns that are valid come up, you don't hear them. Yeah, it, it, it really opened my eyes to engaging. And like you said, there there could be really serious things going on that the overly optimistic, you know, group in the, in the organization are, are blind to. And so I just, I love that. I love that chapter. It's great, great. I, at the end of every chapter, if you haven't gone through the book yet, there are great practical approaches of kind of, let's call them do's and don'ts is overly simple, but, you yeah. know, ways to think about this and ways that can maybe trip you up. And I, I really love that chapter. Yeah. Uh, can we shift gears into the know-it-all? And what sure. to, what to do? I've been this person. <laughs> I know you you said no at all, and I know no one can see my face, but I cringed because it's the one I identify with most too. <laughs> Years ago, I told when I was chief resident, they you know organizing all these meetings and things, and everyone gets to be chief, so you take turns. and And uh, I admitted, I was like, I, I realize I can be kind of a know it all, and everyone just bursts out into laughing. They're like, kind of. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what do you do if someone's hogging the floor in team meetings? How can we effectively engage with know-it-alls? Yeah, I mean, so much of the behavior, not just for the know-it-all, but many of the archetypes is is the result of insecurity. And I certainly know having done this behavior, I still probably, of, of all the archetypes, this is the one I'm most at danger of falling into at any moment, I'll be honest. Um and I know it's often I do it because I'm trying to prove I'm smart or I know something or that people should listen to me. And I think it's important to remember that when you're dealing with a know-it-all is that, again, you know, and of course there are people who are just have a huge ego, but more often than not, they're trying to prove something. And I think it, it gives you a little bit of empathy to remember that, right? They're not trying to make you look small. Maybe that's a byproduct of, of trying to feed their own, you know, insecurity, but they're usually not out to get you. And I, th- I think that can be helpful to keep in mind. You know, one of the things the know-it-all does, and again, I can say this from experience, is to declare things to be true, right? Like our patients will never go for that or um, that, you know, I, you know, I know we can raise revenue in a you know, where we can double revenue in this quarter or whatever. And you, and they have no facts or data to back that up. It's just bluster. Um, and I think it can be helpful to put them on notice that you're going to ask for the facts and data. So, you know, if they say like, our patients will hate this, um, you know, which is a bit of a know-it-all slash pessimist behavior, but you can say, oh, that's interesting. I didn't have that same perspective. What are you basing that on? 
right? And just asking them of, okay, and and sort of dig in with them. Like if, and if they don't have a, a, you know, sort of factual basis for that perspective, you can then ask them like, okay, well, how could we find out whether that's true or not? And, and just engaging on the, on the real specific level of what are we actually talking about? What's the evidence that makes us feel comfortable saying these things? Um, you know, and the other, the other behavior of the know-it-all that's really challenging is interrupting or speaking over you. And I think you can either preempt some of that by, you know, when you're speaking in a meeting and saying, I get really flustered when people interrupt. So I'd ask you to hold any thoughts or questions until I'm done. I'll let you know when that is, right? You can really preempt that. You might also form some allies with people who also are on the receiving end of that know-it-all behavior who can help um, speak up when you get interrupted. You know, I'm not, I don't think we heard the rest of Dustin's thoughts. Let's hear that before we move on, right? Just sort of trying to create a group environment in which we really show respect for one another's thoughts and ideas and give people the the room to complete their thoughts and ideas before we allow the know-it-all to jump in. It's it's so great. There's there's nine principles you share in the book on how to get along with anyone. I love them. uh, And they kind of all weave and tie in together. One that stood out is this, you suggest writing down our goals for the relationship and referring back to them. It was so smart. Can you, can you dig into that a little bit? Yeah. And this is something actually that's, that's in my first book too, the HBR guide to dealing with conflict, which is that I think sometimes because of what we talked about earlier around the brain science and, and our um, sort of instinct to, to just sort of jump in to a, to a conflict or make assumptions about a conflict it can be very powerful to just sort of step back and say, well, what's my goal here, right? What am I actually trying to achieve? Is it that I need this project to get done within, you know, the time frame allowed? Is it that I need to have a positive working relationship with this person because they're the chair of my department and they have a lot of control over what I what I am able to do and not do, right? Just sort of thinking about what is it you actually want from that situation or from that relationship and making that very clear to yourself, right? I, I don't necessarily need to, um, you know, vocalize that to, to your coworker, although that could be helpful too, but it's more about being clear with yourself. What is it you want to achieve? And, you know, watch out for short-term goals. I'll be honest, oftentimes my goal when I'm in a conflict with someone is to prove that they're wrong. And, that's not a very good goal. So, you know, trying to really think about what is it I want over the long term? And can I make that very clear to myself and write it down? Because then I'm more likely to choose behaviors that will help me get to that goal as to ones that will sort of feel good in the short term, but don't actually yield the results I'm looking for over the long term. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. the last time you evaluated your credit card processing statement. Our partners at Stacks are offering a free savings analysis for our listeners, where they will actually take your merchant statement with your current processor and show you where you're overpaying. Stacks has saved orthodontics practices over 40% per month on payment processing costs. So don't wait. Get your free savings analysis today and see how much you're overpaying for your credit card processing. Go to stackspayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars to schedule your savings analysis today. 
Plus as a special offer for our podcast listeners. If you sign up today, you can get your first two months of payments processing costs waived from Stacks. Once again, that's StacksPayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars. Stop overpaying. Start saving. And now back to the program. It's fantastic. I loved, I know I'm skipping around a bit, but I <laughs> took a note in the margin on chapter 14 is absolute gold mine. I love that you love mantras. You put them on sticky notes. I do the same <laughs> thing. Uh, can you talk about controllable? What you call controlling the controllables in the book? Yeah. I mean, this is sort of what I was alluding to before, which is that, you know, it, it can feel when you're on the receiving end of uncivil behavior or even just annoying behavior at work, it can often feel like you're, you have no agency, right? You don't have the ability to change things. You're stuck. And I think sometimes just taking small steps to acknowledge what you do have control over, um, you know, and that might be what your thoughts and feelings, right? That might be what you choose to say and do. That might even be getting a good night's sleep and eating well, right? Just anything that you have control over, reminding yourself of that so you can start to feel a little less stuck in that in that situation. You know, the other thing that that I think is really important to remember is that you because you can't change that that other person, a lot of times this is about sort of taking steps modeling the behavior you want to see, being direct about how their behavior impacts you, perhaps, and then sort of sitting back and hoping for the best. And that can feel really like just things are out of your control. And to some degree they are, but then I like the one of the other ways I like to um, sort of remind myself I have control is to treat all of this as an experiment, right? I get to I get to try these things out, see if they work, see if they don't. Instead of focusing on like, I just wish the other person would be a better person, (laughs) instead focusing on, okay, like that worked or that didn't work. What did I learn? What can I do differently? And, And also sometimes reminding yourself that while you may not be able to change this dynamic with this specific coworker, the exercise of of making good faith efforts and learning from them, seeing what works, what doesn't in certain situations, how that person responds, how other people respond, you're ultimately developing emotional intelligence skills or what I call in the book interpersonal resilience so that the next time you're dealing with someone who fits the same archetype or maybe is slightly different, you've got more tools in your toolkit and you have more confidence that, oh, I can try these things out, right? This isn't this isn't going to put me under. Even though it's really frustrating and annoying, it's not going to be the end of my career or it's not going to be the end of my ability to do my job. It's so true. It's like it's like uh, going to the gym for emotional intelligence, right? Yeah. Like, I, wish, I wish I had this skill, you know, years ago when I dealt with that with that conflict. So, uh, yeah, it's a great, great. The whole book's great, but that chapter is a true, true goldmine. Was there anything? I know you see a lot of research and a lot of data come across your desk as an editor at HBR. Was there anything that surprised you in researching this book, or anything you tried that worked really well? You might want to share. You know, I, I'll, I'll share two things. One was a piece of advice that a, a researcher, Lindy Greer, who's at University of Michigan, gave me, um, which is just, it's a sort of silly piece of advice. And it's, 
I, you know, I knew because she told me it worked for her um, that it was viable, but then I've since shared it many times with people either because they've read the book or in talks and they, and I get the best feedback on it, which is her advice. And this was about dealing with an insecure manager, but I think it's true for any of the archetypes where you really feel like you're sort of in a tug of war with the other person, which is to imagine yourself as a cute, fluffy squirrel when you're interacting with them. And I don't mean by that. And Lindy didn't mean by that to sort of like make yourself small. It's just more about how do you take the edge off your own reaction so you don't further threaten the other person or make them feel more insecure. Again, not that that's not, not, ne- that's not necessarily your responsibility, but it can really sort of take smooth the edges in what might be a tense interaction. Um, so it's a silly piece of advice, but I think actually one that, that I keep getting feedback over and over really works for people. Um, the second piece of the second thing I would, I'll point out is that I sort of went into the book thinking you should not gossip about your coworker. Like that is just bad. Like gossip reflects poorly on you. Um, you, you know, it might come back to you, to that person and then you've further damaged the relationship. And the research is actually a little less uh, definitive on that. I still think gossiping about the other person probably isn't helpful, but more because it just sort of furthers the confirmation bias. So again, if I think you're passive aggressive, Dustin, which I don't, by the way, <laughs> um, but if I think you're passive aggressive and I'm gossiping about it with other people, now we've sort of got this collective view of Dustin's passive aggressive. So anything you do, we see through that lens. And I think that's that's really dangerous. But there's some there was actually a new piece of research, well, new when I was writing the book, about how gossiping about someone wh- whose behavior you don't like actually can encourage them to change that behavior. Because if they know they're going to be talked about, it's sort of the, it's like the positive peer pressure yeah. idea. Yeah. Now, I, I, I am cautious about sharing, <laughs> about sharing that because I don't want the result to be like, oh, good, I get to gossip about my <laughs> that that's what's going to fix them. But I do think there's a way in which that if you think about it as positive peer pressure, how do we set norms? How do we, um, you know, sort of a, adjust our our expectations as a team or as an organization for what's allowed and what's not? And sometimes gossip is the way we communicate that. And And I think that's the other thing is that gossip has such a you know, there's long been research that shows that gossip has upsides in organizations. Um, partly it's how we get information, especially if you don't have traditional access to power or access to traditional power. Oftentimes it's how you can sort of get information out there or absorb information. So there are positives to it, but I don't think I quite understood the way it could play a role in convincing others to behave better. It's so fascinating. I, I I like the approach as a team, right? If you're in this together and you've worked on your side of the street, I'm thinking back to when I would lead team meetings in our practices. And as the know-it-all often who spoke a lot, we just had to shift that. And that was probably a, a reflection of the team saying, yeah, like if you give him the mic, he's, he's going to talk the whole time. <laughs> so we shifted it to, you know, maybe maybe he can speak less or maybe he doesn't have to lead every team meeting. So uh, right. I really, I love that. And I love data that kind of um, 
startles you and go, okay, that's interesting. Now let's figure out why. I just think it's fascinating. That's, those are those are great, great shares. I'm going to use the squirrel one. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I, 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 I still I actually, I, and hopefully she will never listen to this, but I actually use it with my teenage daughter because <laughs> anyone who lives with a teenager knows how quick conflict comes. Like you're all of a sudden having what you think is a normal conversation about what you should have for dinner. And then all of a sudden you're in like a blowout fight and you're like, what happened? <laughs> what <laughs> and, and and so I often like I'll use it because I'm like if I just sort of like imagine myself as non-threatening not like and it does help I mean I still can't control all of it but you know it does help sort of again just sort of smooth out the edges a little bit it's so smart it's fantastic um you know what what do you say to the reader or listener who who gets through the book learns about the archetypes learns the principles to help interact with people and they've tried everything, but it's not working. You know, what do you recommend in that situation? Yeah, I mean, oh, and it's I have been there. I've talked to a lot of people when I was researching the book who've been there. And I think one, the very first thing is like have some self-compassion because it, sometimes it can feel like, well, I've tried everything and I failed. Um, and that's not necessarily true. Or you, you, again, I've said this now, I think four times, but you cannot control the other person. You cannot make them change. And so, you know, as long as you've really made good faith efforts, I think have a little self-compassion that it just doesn't always work out the way you want it or need it to. Um, but I also think there's some other things to consider. And, and in, there is a chapter in the book called, you know, when all else fails, I think a couple things to think about is, you know, should you escalate the issue? Like if you've tried everything, um, you know, is it is now the time to bring it to someone in authority who can actually do something about it? You know, I think that is a, a viable move. However, I also think you need to do it cautiously because sometimes it reflects badly on you to bring bring that issue up with someone in in a position of power. Um, sometimes that person in the position of power, whether it's an HR leader or your boss or your boss's boss, is not interested in getting involved. And so they might actually not do anything about it. And so I think you have to really be careful about making the choice to do that. But when you have when you have nothing left to lose, I think that's something to to really consider, right? Who's the right person who will be motivated and has the skills to intervene on, on my behalf? Um, the other thing I say, yeah, I would say is really document what's going on, because if you've really tried to change the situation and you're not seeing any progress, it may come to the point where you need to make clear the impact this person is having on you, the team, the organization, the goals that, that, that you all are trying to achieve. And so I would really document what happened, right? Let's say it's the political operator, right? Did they, you know, was there a meeting in which they lied? What was the lie about? How did you respond? How did they respond? Like, and just being very, you know, sort of matter of fact about keeping a list of of incidents and what you did and what you didn't do. And at the same time, also documenting your successes, you know, outside of the relationship with this person. Because if things do implode and there's a situation where it's your word against theirs, you also want to make sure that people understand you are a valuable contributor to the organization so that things don't fall apart. Um, 
And then, of course, you know, there's the consideration of if it's bad enough, should you leave your job? And I don't ever give the advice of quitting lightly. I know it's not always a possibility for people. I know it's some for for some people, it's not even they're not even interested. They love their job except for this one person or these two people. Um, but I think you have to ask yourself if, especially if the relationship is having a negative effect on your mental or physical health, you know, is it worth sticking it out? And 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 would will things be different elsewhere? I can't tell you how many people I talk to who tell me they left a job because of what they consider a toxic work environment or someone that they really struggled with. And then they got to their next job and thought, oh, wow, okay, <laughs> like, here's a no whole other different person that I now have to deal with. Um, you know, there's always going to be someone. It's, I just think it's the reality of, of human nature. It's so true. It's not, it's not a game you win. This is a lifelong skill you're going to be deploying, right? That's, really, That's really so cool. well said, Dustin. And I actually might steal that, right? Like this really is not a game you win, right? <laughs> I love that. I want to highlight a couple of things. It's so smart to document. I think as healthcare providers, we're really good at documenting patient record and you know healthcare treatment rendered. We're really poor, at least in my experience, and embracing the power of HR and, and having someone there to help you document these situations because you might really need it. And your memory is not going to be suitable, uh, you know, years in the future to go back and, and show the case of, 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 of what you're trying to, to do to move the organization forward. Yeah, no. And I think that's, I think that's right. And it also feels petty, right? Like I'm writing a list of times <laughs> my know-it-all colleague interrupted me like that, feel, but I can't tell you. And in fact, actually there was a woman I was coaching who was dealing with an insecure manager who was also a know-it-all. And, you know, she was really, I thought she was doing really good work and and following a lot of the, not just my advice, but other advice that out there about how to deal with it. And she finally, you know, it, things got really tense to the point where um, the, the co-founders of the, the company came to her and said, we think you're the difficult person. And and she ended up getting fired. And I and I think that we can't be naive to think that everyone's going to see the situation the same way as you, that the person isn't going to retaliate if you do start pointing out some of the behaviors. So I think that documentation, while it feels awkward and, and like I said, a little petty, I think it can be really helpful when you need it. Yeah. And a, and a great way to objectively step back. It's, it goes back to writing things down. It's such great advice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and the point you made that like you can't rely on your memory, especially in these emotional situations, right? Yeah. You know, you're not seeing things 100% clearly ever, but certainly when you're feeling these um, sort of emotionally triggered. Yeah. Such a great, great practical piece of advice. I do want to highlight, I don't want to get off this interview without highlighting. You mentioned self-compassion. Chapter 14 is so, so good with Kristen Neff's research at the University of Texas. I'll make sure we link to her uh, research department. It's been really helpful for me on kind of putting my oxygen mask on first, right? Taking mm -hmm. care of myself. Uh, I just want to make sure that everyone gets through the chapter on self-compassion. It's really, really powerful. So, yeah. um, can we, I mean, maybe if there's anything you want to share there, because I, I feel like finally mental health is, you know, a topic that's being embraced in, in the workplace yep. where for years we really weren't talking about it a lot. Can you, can you kind of share it, maybe where you see that going and, and what we could do as leaders in our organizations to embrace that further? Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting. When I first started writing the book, 
I got a lot of feedback from people who, who said, oh, I don't like the term difficult people. You can't label someone difficult. You, there's many good reasons people behave these ways. And oftentimes it comes from a place of hurt, which I really understood. Like I, that made a lot of sense to me. And I, there was a lot of debate actually between me and my editor about putting the term difficult people on the cover. Um, but what's interesting is when the book came out three years later, I, I what I started to hear a lot of was like, well, if someone's difficult, you shouldn't have to deal with them. You should really, you know, sort of put your own oxygen mask on first. And and there was sort of this about face, or now I wouldn't even say an about face, but like a pendulum swing of, no, no, don't give empathy to that other person. Give empathy to yourself because you're dealing with this really challenging situation. So I think both are true, right? I think it, we have to be careful about how harshly we judge others for their behavior. Um, but I also think if you're going to, if you have a, if we all have a reserve of empathy, I think you have to give it to yourself first. And hopefully you have enough left over to give that other person too. But that self-compassion in Kristen Neff's work is very, has been sort of life-changing for me in terms of really thinking about the role that plays in, in in navigating difficult relationships because we get so fixated on the other person, we sort of forget to take care of ourselves. And and we get into this a lot of negative self-talk. I mean, at least this has been my experience of I why can't I deal with this person? Why are they pushing my buttons? Why am I letting them get under my skin? Right? What like, oh, like I should know how to deal with this. And and really, you know, a lot of the self-compassion is like, well, what would you tell a friend? You would never tell a friend, like, you should really know how to deal with this. Stop letting them bother you. Right? You would say, oh, God, this is hard. I get why you're, why you're struggling with this. Um, I'm really sorry. And, and I think just even that simple, how would you talk to a friend about this situation can be really, really helpful. And I, and and I do think I love the trend that we that that we are talking more about mental health at work. We're thinking more about how our emotions play a role in these situations, and um, and how to how to use them to our advantage as opposed to letting them sort of overtake the situation. And you know, I just think I I, I think there's so much to gain from us all being a little bit more emotionally aware. Um, acknowledging that people's feelings matter, that, that it affects the work. It's not just, you know, this side thing happening that we can compartmentalize, but that's an essential part of the work. I mean, and, and I imagine healthcare, this is very welcome <laughs> trend as well. And and is so backed by the the medical science, right? Yeah, it's it's we just had a, a an event all about peak performance for healthcare providers and how we often sacrifice our own sleep and energy all because we pour into our patients day after day after day. And I just, I love the book. I love that chapter. It's fantastic. Uh, thank you for writing it. Getting Along is one of my favorite books. I know it'll help people listening uh, become better leaders. I know it can help them and their organizations uh, thrive. And I just wanted to thank you for writing it. And I know I could talk all day if you let me, but I <laughs> I know our time is limited. I do want to give listeners a chance to learn more about you. Where can they go to find more about getting along as well as you and your work? Yeah. Um, and thank you for the nice words about the book. I, it is, a, it's, 
a book launch process you think is like going to be all this glory and fun. And it's just sometimes it feels a little bit like a black hole. You're just like put your book out there. And so when people respond well to it, it's just it's really, really rewarding. So thank you. Um, the best place to find me is my website, which is amyegallo.com. I have a um, semi-regular newsletter that I send out. It's a great way to keep up with my work, you know, where I'm speaking, any videos or articles I've done. Um, so I highly encourage people to to sign up for that. If you're interested in more of my writing, um, I write, I've had hundreds of articles on um, Harvard Business Review, so hbr.org, um, and that my book is for sale there, as well as anywhere else that you might buy books. Awesome. Amy, thank you so much for being on the program. Thanks for having me, Dustin. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Burleson Box. If you liked today's episode, be sure to share it with a friend or colleague. You can learn more about our paid subscription at theburlesonbox.com, where you'll receive two books each quarter, including study guides, handouts, PowerPoint presentations, and group discussions on the book. We'd love to have you. And uh, join us at burlesonseminars.com. You can go there and see our latest blog posts, articles, what I'm thinking, reading, writing, and you can sign up for my free newsletter where I'll send you weekly tips and strategies to boost your new patients and lead your practice with excellence. Before we go, remember the words of Walt Disney who said, quote, there's more treasure in books than in all the pirates' loot on Treasure Island. End quote. Until next time, take care, be well. I'll see you right here next time on another episode of The Burleson Box. Dr. Burleson here. You've heard that real estate should be a part of every investor's portfolio, but maybe you're unsure where to start. My good friend and colleague, Dr. David Phelps, leads an investor community that has ditched the traditional Wall Street model for the stability of real estate assets. They are called Freedom Founders, and they do real estate really, really well. David's Freedom Blueprint reveals exactly how much you need to retire. Some of my top clients have done the program. They speak highly of David and his Freedom Blueprint. With the certainty of their passive real estate investments, Freedom Founders members are free to spend more time with family or even leave the practice altogether. David has put together some special resources for my listeners. To access, just text Dustin to 972-203-6960 or go to freedomfounders.com forward slash Burleson.